0: Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast for people living multicultural lives. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a Black woman married to a Spanish man raising three biracial, bicultural, bilingual children. I'm also a journalist and the author of the book, Same Family, Different Colors, confronting colorism in America's diverse families. Some people call me a cultural critic or a pop culture pundit. I call myself a diversity diva. And I'm really glad you're here for another fascinating conversation that meets at the intersection of race and real life. Welcome back, Melting Pot community. It is officially season four of the My American Melting Pot podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to you too. I'm happy to have you here. Before we dive into today's episode, I have to make a couple of announcements. One. We are moving to a weekly schedule. Yes, from now on, you will find brand new episodes every Friday in your feed for the duration of Season 4, which runs from March 13th to June 19th. It's so exciting! The episodes will vary, though. This week, you will hear a full-length episode with a guest, but next week, we'll have a shorter episode, which will just be the Melting Pot Minute. For those of you new... The Melting Pot Minute is my opportunity to share timely news, reviews, and opinions with all of you in just about a minute. Okay, who are we kidding? It's not really a minute. It's more like five to ten minutes, but the point is I try to keep it short and sweet. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two is that all of the episodes in season four are going to revolve around one theme. And that theme is family. So if you have a family particularly a multicultural family, if you're building a family, if you like your family, maybe you don't like your family. Anyway, if family means something to you, you should definitely tune in this season, where we'll be talking about everything from bilingual families to families who live abroad to adoption. And of course, everything will be discussed through a multicultural lens. Now, speaking of multicultural families, let's get to today's episode. On episode 28 of the podcast, we're going to be talking about interracial relationships in the 21st century. More specifically, 53 years after the Loving decision made interracial marriage legal in all 50 states, have these interracial unions really become accepted by mainstream society? Or are they still taboo? On the one hand, studies show that more people are in favor of interracial relationships than they ever have been in the past. But on the other hand... Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have recently given up their royal status and become exiles in Canada because their interracial relationship was not accepted. Joining me today to chop it up about where we stand as a culture on interracial relationships is Teresa Stovall. Teresa is a mixed race author, journalist and identity rights rabble rouser, working to evolve the conversations around identity and challenging racism. She is a Seattle native based in Atlanta. Her memoir about growing up multiracial is coming out this spring. Personally, I have been following Teresa's work, reading her columns and op-eds for years. So I'm really excited to have her on the show. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Teresa.
1: Thank you so much, Lori. I have been following you and admiring your work as well. So I am super
0: delighted and honored to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. So before we get into the meat of the conversation, I just wanted to ask if you could tell our audience a little bit about your own ethnic background and upbringing in Seattle and how that influenced your sense of racial identity and your calling to do the work that you do today as a identity rights rabble rouser. I love that title, by the way.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Okay, Lori, I am a baby boomer from Seattle, Washington, where interracial marriage was never illegal. And I am bluish. So I spell that hashtag all caps, B-L-E-W-I-S-H. I I use that term because when it comes to identity, I'm all about synthesis. I don't do fractions, divisions, chop myself up like a piece of pie for people's consumption. My mother was Jewish and my father African-American with lots of Native American blood mixed in. I know that that's a popular quote-unquote myth in African-American families, but in my family's case, and you can tell just by looking at me and or my father and his parents, that that's very, very true. So Black and Jewish with some Native American thrown in is my specific mixture. One thing that is unusual about my background is that my Jewish mother and my Black father... Grew up together in the same neighborhood in North Minneapolis 100 years ago in the 1920s and 30s through the Great Depression. At that time, Jewish people generally had not reached the level of immigrant assimilation to be considered white. They were not considered white back then. And so they were redlined into the same neighborhoods as the black people. So my parents grew up together. My father, was a close friend of my mother's oldest brother. So they grew up, they went to school, they lived next door to each other. And so that's a little bit unusual. That's the first unusual thing. My parents did not get together at that point, but they got together years later when they were both in their 30s on the west coast of the United States. They got together in California and they ended up in Seattle, Washington, And Seattle was very interesting. My father was a jazz drummer and there was a very lively jazz scene there. And Quincy Jones talks about this and writes about this because he was very much a part of that scene along with Ray Charles. And Ray Charles didn't necessarily fit this description, but Quincy Jones certainly did, at least to some extent. And Quincy Jones talks about how you had a whole lot of black male musicians, all of whom, or most of whom, dated and mated and procreated interracially. Mm. I was part of that community. And what I didn't realize until I started writing my memoir was how unusual that was. So I was part of a very defined community. I call those children born to those unions, I call us jazz babies. And we grew up in a community that was very unusual. There were a lot of interracial Marriages in Seattle and Washington state, even back then, and we're talking the early 1950s, long before interracial marriage was legal throughout the United States. It was very, very common there. And I just learned about this a few years ago, by the way, is that my mother and the other women, and none of these women were black. My mother, I think, was probably the only Jewish one that I know of, but the rest were white. And in Washington state, white often meant Scandinavian, to be specific. So the rest of these women who were friends, we were extended family. They bought homes near each other. They socialized together. The women would get together. And in the early 1950s, without birth control, without legal abortion, without any reproductive assistance, they would strategize to get pregnant around the same time so that they could have children. And it it worked so that they could have children who were in a community of people like themselves.
0: Wow. That is
1: incredible. It is incredible. And I didn't realize it was incredible until I started working on my memoir. I really did not realize it was incredible until I started really thinking about it. I knew in a very casual way about it. But then when I got information from other people who were there, because I wasn't even born when this was happening, but I got information from people who were there and who were part of it and who witnessed it.
0: So they were basically creating their own little interracial community then.
1: Right. Absolutely. But they were doing it with the well-being of the children in mind. Mm -hmm. And then so I grew up and until I went off to preschool in, you know, the nucleus of that community in my neighborhood, I thought that what I was was normal. I thought I was the mainstream.
0: Mm.
1: Okay. And so when I got older and realized that wasn't true and people would start tripping, about my identity. I never internalized it as something was wrong with me. I always wondered what was wrong with them. And I still do that to this day. My thing is, you know, I don't have issues. You do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm real clear about what I am. Never been any confusion. Don't need a DNA test, but more to the point. So the whole notion, the popular notion of mixed race people is tragic, confused, lost, and rejected was foreign
0: to me. That makes so much sense, knowing you and knowing your work and how positive and, you know, how much of an advocate you are for mixed race people. That makes so much sense. So let me then ask you then, because I think, you know, which is why I wanted you to talk with me today. Why do you think people today in 2020 are still challenged by this notion of interracial unions before you answer? I want to share a couple of facts and statistics. And some people listening might be thinking, what are they talking about? Interracial relationship is not a thing anymore. You look at all over Hollywood, you see people of different races marrying and, you know, having kids together. You know, you look around your neighborhoods, depending on where you live, and you might see people all the time and not think that there's anything really difficult or anything problematic about these types of unions. And if you look in the media, we constantly see statistics like 39 percent of Americans said interracial marriage was a good thing for society, which was an increase from 24 percent in 2010. So that increase of approval from 24 percent to 39 percent, was in 2017. And that also that interracial marriages are actually increasing in the United States, at least from in 1967 to 17% in 2015. So again, some statistics might suggest that we are in an improved place, but if you really look at those numbers, you still have a majority who are not in favor of it. And also, I was actually shocked to see, just doing a quick Google search to see headlines just in the year 2019 of how many interracial couples and families were the victims of violent crimes, house bombings, People being run over in cars, literally being targeted simply because they were uh, black and white or an Asian and Indian, just any type of interracial couple. And again, this was 2019. I'm not I'm not reaching way, way back. Where do you think we are as a society with interracial relationships right now?
1: Where I think we are, meaning the United States of America in early 2020, when it comes to interracial relationships, I think we're very much in process. I think that when you talk about interracial relationships, first you have to look at historic arc. You have to look at the history of each particular country or society that you're talking about and the specific mixes. Different mixes are perceived and received very, very, very differently. So I think you have to start there. So the mix that in this country, certainly, And potentially in Great Britain, when we start talking about the royal family dynamic, is the one that tends to get the strongest reactions, the most attention, and to feel the most disruptive to society is black-white.
0: Yes. And I just um, actually, in doing the research for this show, did not know this, but that the anti-miscegenation laws actually prohibited interracial marriages but actually no they didn't it was only black and white marriages if a black person and an asian person wanted to marry there was no laws against that so you are absolutely right that that is the black and white connection is the problematic one but i i interrupted you please go on
1: so when we're looking at how black white interracial relationships romances marriages specifically are perceived again and received and how they land in the United States in this society, we have to widen our lens to look at the fact that this country was built and runs on a binary system. And the binary system, for better or for worse, for 400 plus years, has been Black versus white. And so That is always going to have the most charge. It is always going to elicit the strongest responses and reactions, not necessarily because it reflects anything about the people who are having those responses or reactions, but because it reflects the realities of the society that we are in. This is a phenomenally anti-Black racist society. Certainly not the only one, but this is a phenomenally anti-Black racist society. And so we can never pretend that anything having to do with blackness is neutral or excluded from events or punished for wearing their natural hair. Okay. So the anti-blackness has never gone anywhere. We, yes, we have laws. We had laws to desegregate American schools. We had laws to make interracial marriage legal in the 16 U.S. states in which it was still illegal. We have laws that change the face of Jim Crow segregation. It didn't make it go away. It just changed the face of it. But you can't look at anything and assess it properly without that context of the binary and the anti-Blackness that goes with it.
0: I agree 100 percent. And essentially, what I was going to ask you, which I think speaks to your point, is do you think that the and I'm putting air quotes up, but the problem with interracial relationships is based on fear. And historically, the laws that were created to ban interracial relationships were about this fear of losing white purity, if you will, right? That we couldn't have this diluting of whiteness. So we had to install some sort of fear against the mixing of the races. Do you think that there is a sense of fear Fear that's ultimately at the bottom of why people still are so against interracial relationships today? Well, Lori, I think again, we have to dial all the way back 400 years.
1: So, technically, interracial relationships, interracial sexual relationships through coercion have been going on for 400 years. And the people born of those relationships have been around for 400 years. We're not new. Keep trying to tell people we're not new. (laughs) What's different, what's changed, but it's only changed, Lori. It's such a small slice of time. If you think about the fact that I was practically grown before anti-miscegenation laws were struck down. So what's new is a recognition of and a legalization of consensual interracial relationships. You have to make the distinction in order to understand again, the context that we're operating in. Okay, so you have to make that distinction. These are consensual interracial relationships. The thing is that dialing back 400 years to the fact that nearly every enslaved African woman was raped by a white man on the plantation at least once. Many, many, many of them bore children. Many of those children were subsequently raped. And so we began this journey as product so what the white men saw rather than it didn't occur to them not to rape these women and not to breed more slaves but what they realized was they needed to come up with a system to ensure that these slaves stayed property that these slaves stayed in their place so if they mixed out four or five times and started looking white, that was the danger line. So the first generation wasn't dangerous, probably. Not if these were full-blooded West African women, right? Second generation, who knows? Third generation, so you got Mulatto, Quadroon, Octoroon. By the time you get to Octoroon, one-eighth black, then let's just picture what this was like for the slave owners, okay? They had to make sure that their property stayed property, And so that's where those labels and designations come from, but that's also where the dynamics undergirding attitudes today come from. Even if people aren't conscious of them, in society, there's still a lot of trepidation. In society, there's still side eyes, there's still questions, there's still attitudes for many, 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 many reasons. Some of which of individuals, some of which are simply societal on the big scale. But we're disruptive. You know, for mixed kids who were born of that combination, they disrupt the entire binary. Remember, this binary is a foundation on which this country is built and on which it runs today.
0: I agree with everything you're saying, and I can follow the history, and I, I completely understand that so many of the laws barring interracial unions were in response to the fact that interracial unions were happening either forced, consensual, or whatever, that all of these laws were put in place, whether it was for control, whether it was to preserve the race, so to speak, but I'm still struggling with this other idea that the United States has always been a country where people of different races have consensually gotten together for different reasons. But at the same time, the power structures have said that these unions were taboo or forbidden, or were going to be the destruction of their livelihood or their quote-unquote "way of life." Do you see what I'm saying that there's, on the one mm-hmm. hand, we are a country that has, since its inception, has been cross-culturally mixing. But the narrative and the power structures has tried to institute a sense that those types of mixings were taboo, dangerous, immoral. What do you think about that kind of binary, if you will? You're absolutely right. I mean,
1: if your identity and most people's identity rests on a certain set of collective agreements, right? Let's just move past race and use tribe for a minute because, you know, humans are a tribal species, right? Mm -hmm. So if your sense of group, collective, tribal identity, and most people's are, is based on an agreed upon set of rules, norms, attitudes, ideas, and everybody fits that, right? Description. Then when those are challenged, one, I think, could reasonably expect pushback. And so, yes, in general, white people, And the dynamics around white identity, white identity is based on the idea, if not necessarily the reality of exclusion, superiority, and presumed purity. We know that's not necessarily accurate, but that's still what it's based on. That's still what defines it. And so if I'm white and my identity, my collective tribal identity Revolves around and relies upon those notions, then if those notions are challenged or threatened, I might feel challenged or threatened. I might not. I might be perfectly neutral. I might think it's a great idea. But we're talking about the collective, not individual by individual, right now. And we're also talking about, in the case of white people in this country, an entire government and every institution, a complete machine, a system that has been running for centuries based on these notions, based on these ideas. So that it isn't as simple as someone saying, well, I used to be against it, but now I'm cool. I mean, that happens with individuals all the time. But bigger than the individual is, how does the system deal with this? How does the machine deal with this. And so that's, again, when you come to whiteness and blackness and how they interact with each other and the dynamic that one, they're not equal, they're not equivalent systemically. And so, you know, you have to fold in all the dynamics. So let me, let me give you an example, Lori. It is a popular notion that a person is racist if they're against interracial relationships. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. I find that to be very, very inaccurate. First of all, many groups of people, I like to use the word tribes to move away from race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, language, whatever, for a minute. Okay, many people's tribal identities are tribal identities. And I don't know if it's human nature or if we've been socialized into it. Someone much wiser than me who's had time to study this would have an answer to that. But I do know that it seems to be fairly natural for many members of every group to want to preserve that identity through generations. So my mother's Jewish. So the only rule, and, and my mother and father were divorced when I was a toddler, and he wasn't really an active part of our lives. But the only hard rule I was given regarding my identity or background was that in general, in the Jewish context my mother was familiar with, you are considered Jewish if your mother is Jewish. If it's your father, you're not. That was a rule, okay? And so that was the only rule I was given. And I'd go out into the world and people would try to figure me out, you know, and black people would say, well, if your father's black, you're black. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not that's not a rule. A rule is if your mama's Jewish, you're Jewish. Everything else, you know, just seemed to be whatever. But I, like I knew that was a rule. That was a law of the tribe, or at least of her segment of the tribe, okay? And it's still a law. I mean, it's still a rule that impacts Jewish identity globally to this day. But anyway, many, many, and I don't know the statistics and I don't know if anybody has the statistics, but many, 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 many American Jewish men marry out. They do not marry Jewish women. So if in a lot, a lot of those people, if the identity is matrilineal and you're not marrying a woman who is Jewish, then you are disrupting the tribal dynamic. And there are many, and I'm just utilizing Jews because I'm familiar with it and I've seen it firsthand, not to single them out. But many, many Jewish people don't want their sons or daughters marrying non-Jews. It's not that they hate them or feel superior to them. It's that they're breaking that line. They're breaking that rule. They're disrupting the passing on of the identity, the tradition, the culture. So I don't know that people could say, well, they're they're racist if they don't want their son or daughter to marry a white, an Asian, whatever. Okay? So that's the example I use because, again, it's the example I grew up seeing close up. And again, I'm not singling out Jews as being worse. That just happens to be what I am familiar with because of my background. My point being, I don't see anybody coming for the Jews and saying they're wrong for that, that they're racist for that. Similarly, a lot of Asians in the United States marry out men and women, especially women. And some of that is built into, in some cases, not across the board, in some cases, it's built into the immigrant assimilationist dynamics that their parents program them with. The greatest thing you can get is a white guy. Again, sometimes, I'm not, this is not a rule, but again, so I say all that to put people's responses to Let's use swirling as shorthand for interracial relationships, into context, okay? I think you have to look at the specific mix, the dynamics of that specific mix in the context, in the place, in the society, in the culture, where it is, because they're all they're different. People respond differently to different ones, as we know. But when Black is involved, everybody responds strongly.
0: Yeah. You know, this is sort of a, a side thing, but do you think of— Kanye West and Kim Kardashian as an interracial relationship? I think it depends. I mean, the reason I brought that couple up is because I just assumed that's an interracial couple. And yet there wasn't the type of blowback or even talk about it the way a lot of other kind of celebrity interracial couples get. And I don't know if that's because people associated Kim Kardashian so much with black culture that it wasn't really a thing or like because they are so Hollywood and so over the top anyway that nobody really cares. But it does bring to mind, okay, so here you have a Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, which are, you know, they're super celebrities. And I don't see anybody really having a problem with their relationship in terms of it being an interracial relationship, that it's problematic for that reason. And yet then you look at Prince Harry and I still like to call her Princess Meghan. And you see the world go crazy and lose their mind that this prince married this, quote unquote, Black woman. What do you think was the problem people had with Harry and Meghan? Do you think it comes down to, like, we're just not ready for a Black princess marrying our white prince?
1: So regarding Prince Harry and Princess Duchess Meghan, (laughs) uh, Markle... Many, many thoughts and ideas. One is, again, context. I'm a fan of context. So we're looking at the British royal family. We are looking at the aristocracy. We are looking at massive colonial powers in history for centuries and centuries, even though they might not have enslaved Black or other people of color on their own land. But the institution of the royal family seems to me to be. For Great Britain and maybe for Europe in general, a flagship of whiteness, of white dominance, of white supremacy, of white colonial power. I mean, that's what it represents to me. When I look at it, I'm like, mm, okay, then, like plantation on steroids, and so. But that, but for centuries, I mean, but that's what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. and I just think that's an objective description. It's not a criticism. That's what it represents. That's the reality of what they represent. So. Now, you bring in Megan. So, Megan is biracial, black woman, but Megan is also looks like me. Megan is super light skinned, not just light skinned, she's super light skinned. She's very ambiguous looking. And if she weren't famous and nobody knew who she was and nobody had any idea about her background and she just strutted up in there with him, now, in the digital age, obviously, we could all find out. So we'll just put that aside for a minute. Would anybody even know what she was? But she's famous. And so she that was the headline from the time they had their first date. Oh, Harry is swirling. And her entire identity, and let's be honest, she was an actress, but she wasn't an A-list actress. She wasn't headlining a show. She wasn't above the title status. She was one of a whole bunch of pretty very, very light-skinned, with long-haired women in Hollywood on a screen. She didn't stand out. I don't dislike her, but she wasn't a standout until she got with him. Okay, so you get with him, everybody knows her background. A, it's the information age. B, she's a superstar. C, she's spoken publicly about it. So she, her identity preceded her. Whatever they thought about it, they run the dossier, they like, and you know, you've got to remember something, Lori, that for most white institutions, certainly in the Western world, black is black. When you're looking at institutional systemic racism, yes, there are layers. Yes, there are levels that vary in intensity based on how many drops you've got and how many you can see. However, ultimately, black is black is black. And so black is still seen as quote unquote the human stain. Black is still seen and perceived and responded to as a form of attack. So they're looking at their lineage, and you know, I can't say about the intermarriage or anything like that. I really have not studied the royal family in any way, shape, or form. But they're looking at, again, the crux of their identity. And in their case, it's not just individual identity. It's a whole nation. And while, you know, this isn't the government that runs this nation, this is symbolically their power, right? This is their power. This is their British white identity and reality and validation. And then I like, we don't care if it's just one drop going to slide on in. If we know about it and can protest it, we're going to do so.
0: So it it comes back to fear then again. I don't think anybody is actually thinking like, oh, my goodness, our great white blood is going to be stained. But it feels like fear. It feels like some kind of encroachment on their superiority. Like what you're saying makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. But it still it strikes me as so bizarre when you can't turn on the television, you can't go to the movies and not see some version of an interracial relationship and nobody's head blows up. Right. I mean, I think that's, again, why I wanted to do this episode, because one could assume that interracial relationships are de rigueur, that they're normal and acceptable. And yet everything you're saying about the overwhelming white supremacist narrative and systems in place make it such that they really aren't, that we're really not okay. I think that before we just say it's fear or criticize
1: the people, who are pushing back against it, who have issues with it, I think we have to look at, it's not just fear, and I want to look at both sides of the coin. It's power. If you're threatening the power on which my entire reality, my world, my identity, my power, my power, my power are built, and the fuel that sustains them, regardless of what it is, then it is only natural to expect that I'm going to push back somehow. I want to flip the coin a little bit. I want to take it away from talking about the white people and the white institutions. Because what I observe and what I observe in close proximity and might even be part of to some extent is the other side of the coin. And so, again, I know we're focusing on black, white, but that's the binary. And and that's still it's well, it's not the majority of interracial relationships or people born from those relationships, it's still the most visible and the most most likely to cause strong reactions. So I'm saying that to share another perspective. So from what I see and where I stand, two things. I'm in the media. I work in media, marketing, strategic communications, all those things have all of my life. Yes, mixed couples and families are, since that Cheerios ad becoming more normalized and more common in the media, that's target marketing. That's a result of census numbers coming out and saying, oh, you know, there's more mixed couples and there's more mixed kids being born. And so let's get that demographic. That's what that's a result of. It's not necessarily a result of accepting or embracing those relationships. That's a a hardcore marketing decision made, by the way, in part by white men in large part by white men who run the advertising and media, for the most part. Yes, it's becoming more normalized. However, on the flip side of that, not all people of color, not all black people, and not all of us mixed people are rah-rah about it. Not all of us are neutral about it. Not all of us think it's a great thing. And so I want to be really careful that we're not just shooting arrows at white people, white supremacy, white institutions. Because I think to see the big picture, the full range of this, one has to really, when I go back to what I think is potentially, and I haven't studied this, I'm not an expert, what is potentially a normal human instinct to preserve a sense of collective or tribal identity or ancestry, I see Black people and other people of color complaining about these media representations a lot. One of the big complaints is that they show a lot of Black women with non-Black men, Some would like to see more black men with non-black women. Some would like to never again see a portrayal of a black man with a non-black woman. So I think that we've got to look at the big picture and we've got to be really inclusive in, in talking about people's responses to swirling.
0: You bring up a really good point. I remember a very social media conversation where a lot of Southeast Asian women were really angry to see. It seemed that every time there was a portrayal of a popular Indian male figure and, you know, TV shows and movies that they were always with a white woman. And it was very frustrating and very disheartening to see. So I agree 100 percent. And I think your theory about all of us wanting to preserve our tribe, I think it's a natural instinct. And I like your terminology of tribe, because who doesn't want to preserve their own cultural and ethnic community? And it can feel like a loss when people, marry out or couple out or procreate out, if you will, out of that community. So it's absolutely not a black, white thing at all. And I just I'm still stuck on the the idea that it's what we see kind of in popular culture is often just a marketing decision based on population trends. You know, we're going to we're going to target that, you know, mixed race community that's supposedly growing. And I do think like what you said, it's almost akin to to a certain extent, the idea of people thinking that interracial relationships are going to solve our racism problem, which I put right next to being colorblind will also solve racism. I think they're both erroneous and silly ideas, but you still get that kind of narrative that the fact that people are marrying and coupling across cultures obviously means that they're not racist. It obviously means that we are beating racism in some way. And and I think that's obviously not true, but I do think that people— tend to look at increasing numbers of interracial relationships being a signifier of a decrease in racism. Do you agree with that?
1: I'm not sure, and I'll tell you why. Um, Maybe people see the rise in interracial relationships and marriages as a sign that racism is decreasing. I think that that's a popular notion, and I think it's a popular notion in general for people who would like to see racism decrease without, if they're white, them having to do any actual work to dismantle the systems behind it. And if they're not white, it gives them a sense of hope because, as we all know, living with the realities of racism is consistently traumatizing and exhausting and debilitating. And so it's just human to want to look for hope or something that you think can help. So I think that that's one thing. I think on the other hand, one of the things I've learned, I'm in a ton of mixed race Facebook groups. And I'm usually the oldest person in the group because I'm a baby boomer. But it's fascinating because the younger generations, there are many who, uh, well, we all talk about how interracial relationships, marriages, and having mixed kids in no way signifies in any way, shape, or form that racism has gone anywhere, been diminished, or is going away. And we often talk about racism in our immediate families sometimes from our parents, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, et cetera. But it's far more common than not. Those conversations prove that, that we grapple with racism, not just in the world, but in our immediate families, in our homes. And so we know that our existence and the dynamic that created us is in no way an end to racism, is in no way a solution to racism at any level.
0: What do you see that other people don't see as the product of an interracial union.
1: Well, first of all, I don't like the word "product." <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, child, no, it's okay. You know? Everybody yeah. uses it. Everybody yeah. uses it. So just say as a mixed as a mixed person. But as a mixed person, what I see and what I know, other mixed people see. Not everybody's parents are racist, but we most of us, especially who are black. And some form of white, or I would say white-ish in my case, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we've heard, what we've encountered, and had to figure out how to navigate. And it can be unconscious racism. Is racism in your immediate bloodline, in your family? And if it's not in your family, then maybe it's in your neighborhood or in your community And you're wondering if, you know, your parents getting together, if that didn't symbolize something, and if your existence doesn't symbolize something. Because on the one hand, there's people who say that, and that narrative is often advanced, especially from your parents. I mean, our parents, even well meaningly, will advance that narrative to us. And then we go out in the world and go, "Mm, no, that's not really how it works, is it? So what we see is we just, we see it in a different kind of way. We see it at an intimate level. And, you know, we see it because, we don't have the privilege of illusion. You know, we also talk about a lot in the mixed groups about even in happy, strong marriages, relationships that created us, sometimes there's self-hatred driving them. Sometimes there's fetishizing driving them. And so these are the nuances we have to grapple with. I write about all of these in my book. These are the nuances we have to grapple with that people don't imagine. They think our biggest problems are we quote unquote don't know who we are or we don't know where we belong. So in general, my takeaway for talking about interracial relationships in the 21st century, yes, they're more common. Yes, they're more accepted. But until we really unpack the underlying dynamics, then we won't really have truly smooth sailing. hmm
0: Yeah, definitely. And that was going to be my my final question for you. What's the main takeaway? And you just you just summed it up right there is that, yeah, there's more of them. But we're not, quote unquote, healed, if you will, or they're not going to be acceptable until we get rid of or unpack, if you will, our anti-black racism, our tribalism. And I like that you have pointed out that this is not a white black problem that this is something that anybody who belongs to a tribe, which is all of us, you know, we have to all grapple with. I am so excited about your book, though, because it sounds like you are helping us unpack a lot of these ideas. So you said your book will be out in the spring. Does it have a title that we can look for? Just tell us where we can find out when it's going to be ready. Is there a website, uh, social media handles that we can find out for sure?
1: Yes, thank you. So this podcast airing, is the official reveal of the title of my memoir.
0: Oh, exciting. Yay. So the
1: title of my memoir is Swirl Girl, Coming of Race in the USA by Teresa Stovall. Swirl Girl. Swirl Girl, Coming of Race in the USA. Thank you. And uh, website is teressastovall.com, T-A-R-E-S-S-A-S-T-O-V as in Victor, A-L-L.com follow me on Facebook, Teresa Stovall, and on Twitter and Instagram at Teresa Talks, T-A-R-E-S-S-A Talks, T-A-L-K-S. So this is the official launch. Now the world knows the title of my memoir, Swirl Girl, Coming of Race in the USA. And I really, really want to thank you, Lori. This is such an honor.
0: Well, I want to thank you and I want to tell you something. Every single author who has come on this show has after being on the show, has had some kind of amazing career lift after. Like, I'm pretty confident that your book, even if you weren't on my show, is going to do well. But now I'm going to say it's going to do a little extra well because it has the My American Melting Pot Juju on it. So all of your links are going to be on the show notes page. And so everybody can follow you and get their copy of Swirl Girl as well. And I just want to thank you so much for your insight and opinions and being on the show today. Thank you
1: so much, Laurie. This has been absolutely wonderful. I look forward to the day when you and I can do a panel or a talk together somewhere publicly.
0: Yes, it has to get done. Okay, we both put it out there. It's going to happen.
1: Thank you. And I receive all the blessings that come with this podcast. I thank you, your amazing team and your fabulous listeners. And let's (laughs) go out and address all these things together in the spirit of love and solidarity and progress.
0: That was a great conversation. Teresa Stovall really tells the truth. And she's funny, too. I think my main takeaway from this conversation is that it's not just white people who have problems with interracial relationships. All of us have a role to play because all of us really do want to belong to a tribe and want to preserve our own cultural legacies. So we all have a lot of work to do to unpack the underlying issues that make us squeamish or uncomfortable when we see people of different races coupling. I can't wait for Teresa's book to come out so I can read more about her beliefs and ideas about interracial relationships. And I hope all of you take something away from this conversation that you can use in your own life. Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. If you enjoyed today's episode and found it valuable in some way, please take a moment to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews really do help other people find the show. You know, another way you can help us grow the show is to just tell somebody that you enjoy My American Melting Pot. You tell a friend and then they tell a friend and then they tell a friend and pretty soon Oprah wants me on the own network and the whole world will be part of our Melting Pot community. Wouldn't that be awesome? You can also just post something on your social networks. That's like telling all of your friends at the same time anyway. Okay, enough of me begging you to like me. So let me get back to ways I can help you. If you're looking for more multicultural lifestyle content, please visit the My American Melting Pot blog at myamericanmeltingpot.com. That's also where you'll find the show notes for this episode with all of the links mentioned, including all of the contact information for Teresa. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And all of my social media handles are on the blog. If you're looking for a community where you can continue to talk about melting pot issues, join us on our private Facebook group, where we are currently participating in the Diverse Reading Challenge of 2020. The My American Melting Pot podcast is recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. The show is produced by me, Lori Diversity Diva Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Lilliputing Linder. Our sound engineers are Tyler McClure, Paul Marchesani, Joe Patty, and Nick Krause. And our theme music was composed by Sumi, always in tune, Tanoka. Thank you for listening to the My American Melting Pop podcast. And don't forget to always live your life in color.